to Bloody Mary's A Queer Horror Podcast. This episode, we're reviewing Rosemary's Baby. I'm the shadowy figure with eyes looming around your door at night, <laughs> Alex. And I'm your ideal housewife, who's actually a robot with perfect breasts, Sean. Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. <Robo-boo>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're two queer horror nerds from Hackney, our pronouns are they, them. Um, trigger warnings uh, for this episode. Uh, sexual assault or rape, uh, suicide, murder, swearing, and of course, spoilers. And there'll be brief mention of Roman Polanski at the beginning, but oh, yes. I'll keep it brief. Okay, thank you. So to begin with, and to borrow a phrase that Alexandra Burke originated in the UK, <laughs> I'd like to address the elephant in the room. Uh, and in this case, the elephant is unfortunately a paedophile and abuser. Yeah. So uh, obviously this film is written and directed by Roman Polanski, who's a horrible person who should be cancelled off the face of the earth into a fiery prison in hell. Yes. Um, but instead we're going to be celebrating uh, the performances of an incredible cast uh, a beautiful score, the iconic source material, and uh, generally celebrating what a wonderful film it is, which it would have been with or without Robert Polanski. <laughs> um, yes. So, well, there'll be brief mention of him uh, throughout this bit, but nothing relating to the horrible things that he's done. Um, so it's a 1968 film based on the book of the same name from 1967. And I would say it's the most faithful adaptation of a book to a film I've ever, ever seen. Ever, ever? Ever, ever. Um, it's There are bits that are like word for word, and apparently they thought that because it was the first time Polanski had ever adapted a book, he wrote the screenplay, he didn't realise that he had as much kind of creative freedom as he wanted. Oh. <laughs> but I think it's all the better for it, because the book is perfection. It's so, so good. Um, so Ira Levin, who wrote the book, was unusually for a straight man, uh, very good at writing women and about issues affecting women. Uh, he also wrote Stepford Wives in 1972. Um, and he said of Rosemary's Baby, um, I feel guilty that Rosemary's Baby led to The Exorcist and The Omen. A whole generation has been exposed has, has and has more belief in Satan. I don't believe in Satan. <laughs> he then goes on to say that in spite of his uh, regrets, he uh, he's always accepted his royalty checks. Um, so the the book was inspired by a number of things. Uh, his wife was pregnant when he wrote it. Um, there was lots of talk about the upcoming June, which would have been June of 1966 or 666, ah. uh, the number of the beast. And... Uh, Time magazine had just had a cover call which said, Is God Dead? Is God Dead? Which features in the film. It does. Um, the film is said to be cursed, as most brilliant films are. <laughs> and I shall read off some of the uh, <laughs> the, yes. uh, the curses. Um, some of them much bleaker than the others. I'll start with a very bleak one. Mm. So the composer who wrote uh, the song which is known as Rosemary's Lullaby, which is sang by Mia Farrow, which goes... Oh, is it? Yeah. La 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 Which Alex always sings as a vicar of Dibley. The Lord is my shepherd. Also sang by Mia Farrow. Anyway, this gets bleak now. So the composer, Christoph Komeda... Uh, who was in his late 30s, uh, in the autumn of 1968, short, uh, shortly after the film was released, um, had a fall. 
um, and fell into a coma. He fell so bad fall into a coma. Um, uh, <laughs> he was in the coma for four months uh, and he never recovered from it and died. Um, oh, well, he died in a coma? Yeah, so he, oh. he never regained consciousness. Um, the producer, William Castle, who uh, was director of films including 13 Ghosts, House on Haunted Hill, The Old Dark House. And Straight Jacket. Um, and Straight Jacket. Yes. Um, and a host of B-movies. Um, in April of 1969, he was in hospital with severe kidney stones. Oof. And he was having... He apparently, he was quite traumatised by the film in the end, mainly because he was getting lots of... Uh, letters from uh, Christians who were outraged and he thought the devil was coming after him. Um, and he was hallucinating in the hospital scenes from Rosemary's Baby oh, and he was heard to be shouting, Rosemary, for God's sake, drop the knife! <gasps> um, and apparently he never really recovered from the trauma of this film. Wow. Um, uh, yeah, so the other, the most well-known kind of curse related to this, which isn't really a curse, it's just a thing that happened... So Polanski's then girlfriend, Sharon Tate, uh, was murdered in July of 1969, as was their unborn son, uh, by the Manson family. Uh, The 1968 Beatles White Album was written on an Indian retreat that was attended by Mir Farrow, and that featured a song called Helter Skelter, which appears in blood on the the scenes, uh, the crime scenes of the, the the mansion, the mansion, the mansion family. And then another Beatles-related thing is that in December of 1980, John Lennon was assassinated outside of the Dakota Apartments. And the Dakota Apartments are used for the exterior shots of the Bramford. Um, And he was shot uh, almost uh, exactly on the spot where Terry's body is um, uh, in in the film. Um, So William Castle uh, secured the rights to the book, wanting to direct it himself. Because of the, he was known for like kind of quite gimmicky things, yeah. like the um, I know the version that I used to have of Thirteen Ghosts. You were supposed to wear three D glasses, and the ghosts <laughs> appeared in like color. Um, yeah, he had like vibrating seats in cinemas, yeah. and like it was all kind of like schlocky. Yeah, I saw something that said that he was also responsible for smellovision. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure that ever became a thing. No, it? <laughs> never really captured the imagination. <laughs> um, but they wanted someone because the book became. Uh, went on to become like a huge success and they thought it would um because he secured the rights before it was published i think um the uh they wanted someone better known who was better known for making higher budget productions so william castle was kind of uh, reduced to the role of the producer really really didn't like the way that polanski worked because he was so kind of anal and intricate but he does make a cameo in the film which we'll get to um so mia farrow was cast mainly for her name value because she was well known and they wanted uh, the film to be, a, they thought it was, it had potential to be a big film. Um, originally, Polanski had wanted to cast someone who was more uh, sort of like a shapely woman, who oh. was more like an all-American gal. Um, and he'd actually kind of petitioned for Sharon Tate to, to have the role. Um, but Mia Farrow obviously is like a tiny little waif of a woman. Um, it seems like that suits the story better, but anyway. Yeah, it kind of reminds me how in The Shining, in the book... The mother is like a kind of soccer mom, all-American, and yet she's cast... What Shelley Duvall is like, this kind of withered, um, (laughs) sort of olive oil figure. (laughs) Um, So uh, there's an interesting cameo from the actor Tony Curtis, who's from Some Like It Hot, and used to be married to Janet Leigh from Psycho. Um, He plays the voice of Donald Baumgart, 
you know the what the guy who goes blind who oh. was supposed to have the role and the reason he was cast is because Mia Farrow knew him but she wasn't told it was going to be him on the end of the phone and that was done in one take and her confusion on the phone is oh. Polanski wanted to capture that because she recognised the voice but she couldn't quite place it um the scene where she walks into traffic in Manhattan um, uh, was not, that was not like kind of filmed in like a kind of safe way. She literally was just made to walk out into traffic. It did look that way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was filmed on a handheld camera by Roman Polanski, who was the only one that was prepared to take the risk. Yeah. I mean, fair enough that his cameraman wouldn't want to do that, or camera people rather. Um, the uh, and, and to try and comfort. Um, Mia Farrow, he said that, uh, don't worry, no one's going to run over a pregnant woman because she had the kind of fake belly on. Um, the interior shots of... <laughs> it was a choice, generally. <laughs> <laughs> Will I all the time run this person over? Oh, no, she's pregnant. I'll spare her. <laughs> the, uh, the interior shots of the beautiful apartment uh, were shot on a soundstage in Paramount's, Paramount Studios in Hollywood. Um, during filming, uh, Farrow wanted to break the contract because she was served divorce papers by her husband, Frank Sinatra, during oh. filming. Um, but she was convinced to stay because she was shown a very rough cut of what had been shot so far and was told that she'd definitely uh, be nominated for an Academy or an Oscar. Um, she was nominated for nothing. Um, uh. And it's considered to be one of the biggest uh, Oscar snubs of all time. <gasps> Snubberoo. Yeah, snubsolutely disgusting. <laughs> um, <clears throat> This uh, the, a review from Variety said that the film holds attention without explicit violence or gore, and uh, and calls uh, Farrow's performance outstanding. Uh, some other trivia: um, Mia Farrow was a vegetarian, um, but she did eat uh. raw liver um, in the film. Oh, I wonder. If that wasn't was like a dietary was... thing, like a pescatarian. <laughs> I am a vegetarian, but I do eat raw liver. Um, <laughs> no, I thought they made it like a fake raw liver out of like jelly or something. When I was watching the film. I was like, oh, I hope that's yeah, not raw no, liver. So, it's <laughs> real. So in the in the book, she eats um, raw chicken hearts Ugh. because apparently that was that has some connection to witchcraft in some way that I, I don't know about, but. Um, so the original cut of the film was over four hours. Um, I would quite like to see that. Um, the, uh, there's a rumour that that's kind of unsubstantiated that Sharon Tate does actually appear in the film in an uncredited role in the party that Rosemary and Guy throw for their young friends. Oh, um, there's a lot of people there. There are. Um, so Ruth Gordon, who also has an outstanding performance <laughs> in this as Minnie Castavette, um, this film was a bit of a career resurrection for her because uh, two or three years later she went on to star in Harold and Maud. Um, I love Harold and Maud. Yeah. Um, so the the scene where she gets a Vidal Sassoon haircut is something that people always reference about this film because it seems quite kind of random. But it is actually from the book. And in the book, um, she she um, she gets a haircut when she discovers that she's pregnant. It's kind of like on a whim because she's so excited. Oh. Um, and she does get a Vidal Sassoon haircut. And in the film, actual Vidal Sassoon did do her cropped hair. Oh, okay. Um, so John, Joan Crawford, John. Hi, I'm John. Crawford. <laughs> <laughs> Joan Crawford was, orig- was filmed in scenes to appear um, oh. as herself. Um, so what? there was a scene, you know, when she first go, when, uh, Rosemary first goes to see Dr. Hill and she says that she's been to see a film, uh, a play, um, oh. they filmed them going to see the play and, uh, she bumped into Joan Crawford on the way out as Joan Crawford. 
And I think, like, playing herself. Oh and I think it's probably supposed to be that they're kind of, like, now rubbing shoulders with high society sort of thing. Oh. Um, so that scene must exist somewhere. I'd love to see yeah, that. Yeah, same. Oh, I'm sure it would have been in the uh, four-hour cut. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think this, this trivia has, like, the most name-droppy trivia. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Frank Sinatra, John Lennon, Joe Crawford, uh, just, just the guys. <laughs> guys and gals. <laughs> so this is an interesting bit, which I think is probably more like internet lore. But in the telephone, in the telephone booth scene where we see William Castle. Yes. Um, she, da- she We see her, her muttering the numbers uh, 4377, which apparently upside down says hell. <gasps> but I've tried it and it actually says le. <laughs> it's not like on a calculator, doesn't it? Yeah, but it would still be backwards. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it should really be 7734. Yes. But anyway, that's it's not a major plot point. So um, the. Uh, while Ira Levin, like, drew from lots of, like, kind of real sort of satanic material, um, he did take a lot of liberties. Um, so so you say really took the piss. He really did take the piss, really. <laughs> um, so uh, Tannis Root is fictional, um, but it is uh, an anagram of uh, Satin, which is an ancient form of the word Satan. Um, and there's a bit of a double bluff. So the book, uh, All of Them Witches... Um, where she finds out that Hutch said the name is an anagram, and she originally thinks it's the title of the book, mm. but it's not. And she finds out it's the name of uh, Adrian Mercado. Mm. Um, but it is actually an anagram of Hell a Cometh Swift, or <laughs> A Hell Cometh Swift. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Which I'm sure she could have worked out if she'd just spent more time with the Scrabble <laughs> tiles. Um uh, so this film is also credited for uh, birthing, pardon the pun, the subgenre of childbirth horror. Um, oh. There were some examples listed, <laughs> but I, they're all a bit obtuse. Yeah, I but I think, can't even think of it. But you do know my theory that I've said a million times, which is that all horror is about mothers. mothers. <laughs> um, so the, the devil, who appears in the uh, kind of dreamy rape scene... Um, is God unfortunate <laughs> choice of words um, is played by a guy called Clay Tanner and apparently in an in, so in a, either in an interview or in her uh, biography Mia Farrow says that um, that whole scene took like hours and hours and hours as everything did with Roman Polanski and he was naked but wearing the kind of accoutrements God. and was like grinding up against her for hours on end mm. and then following this like really kind of uh, intense and unpleasant scene. He he shook her hand and said it was a pleasure working with you. And she re- uh, she commented that he was a lovely man. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in the there are a few changes from the book, but a kind of funny one is that at the end of the book, where they all start chanting "Hail Satan," mm. um, what actually happens is that uh, when that Rosemary picks up the baby and nurses it, and uh, and they start chanting "Hail Rosemary." Um, oh. <laughs> um, but there's also a slight difference. I, I'm, I'm kind of uh, testing my memory a little bit here because I haven't read it for ages. But the, at the end, she is when she picks up the baby, she has a brief moment where she considers jumping out of the window with the baby. Um, oh. And then she decides instead that she's going to raise it and let the Vatican know about it. <clears throat> and, <gasps> and they can decide what to do with it. Um, so uh, there, there was a, uh, a television film sequel made called something like What Happened to Rosemary's Baby. Whatever happened. Whatever happened to <laughs> baby, baby Adrian. Baby Rosemary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> baby Rosemary. <laughs> um, it didn't feature any of uh, of the cast from this and was like widely panned. And that was seen as like, because it was like 
uh, it was kind of around the same time, although earlier, of like The Omen and The Exorcist. It was expected that it was going to become a bit of a franchise, but the absolute flop of the second film meant that that never happened, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, you can't, you can't make a franchise out of this film. Yeah, I, it's also, it's just such a neatly done... Like, it's finished. The film, the story is f- told. Yeah. Which arguably it is in The Exorcist as well, I guess. But um, the... Um, there was also a sequel written by Ira Levin, um, I think maybe even in like the 90s. And I think it was seen as a bit of a kind of cash in because the new... Oh, 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 it was to do... There was some anniversary of some sort and it was called The Son of Rosemary. And that again was really, really critically panned. And it turns out at the end that uh, that Guy and Rosemary were dreaming the contents of the first oh, film all along. My <laughs> yeah, God. and just I haven't read this anywhere, but just thinking about his regret about the film, I wonder if that's his kind of like penance Ugh. for like introducing the reintroducing the world to the devil. <laughs> so actually, you know what? It was a dream. My bad. Um, <laughs> there was a TV mini miniseries made called Rosemary's Baby a few years ago, which was shite, and I Did don't recommend it. Yeah, it's awful. The, like the, the cast of Ets are like these kind of like young, sexy kind of. It's like no, like okay. they stripped any kind of joy and campiness out of it. Um, and then Mia Farrow uh, went on to play uh, a role in another film about a demonic child in the 2006 remake of The Omen. She plays the nanny who's been. Uh, the like evil nanny who's been charged with looking after Omen. Evil nanny. Um, and that's that. That's all of my trivia. It's quite a lot. It's good. Thank you. Juicy. begins with a shot of the uh, the apartment called the Bramford, um, which we've seen in person, but you we don't have. remember. Well, it's just um, a street in New York. <laughs> but a very beautiful building. And I was <laughs> like, this is where Rolls was playing. Blah, blah, blah. But it's right next to Central Park. Um, and uh, I, next time we visit New York, we must stop oh, by. Absolutely. Um, so uh, we're, we're introduced to a couple called Rosemary and Guy Woodhouse, and they are viewing an apartment there. Um, we learn that Guy is an actor, um, and he's been in uh, a few TV roles and a few uh, a few adverts and a few plays. Uh, plays. Um, the The apartment that they're viewing, uh, there was an elderly woman who died in hospital who'd lived there, um, and the house is still as she left it, filled with uh, herbs and plants. Um, and they find, uh, or at least the person showing them around, uh, notices that a closet at the end of the hall is covered by... Uh, a secretary, I know. or a dresser, as we might call it. Secretary. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they move it and see uh, a a closet there, and they're um, they're a bit um, they're confused because the uh, the guy showing them around says that she was eighty nine. She couldn't have moved it herself. Why would she have blocked it? And uh, Rosemary is also surprised because it's got her vacuum cleaner and her towels in there. Why would she cover up that? Um, she was called Mrs. Gardinia, if anyone's interested. I'm interested. Um, so we then see them uh, having dinner with their friend and landlord, I think, Hutch. Um, and they, they're telling him about um, about the, the, the place, and he knows lots of dreadful stories from there, including, you know, it's got a dark history, including a series of women called the... A series of women... Some sisters. <laughs> a series of two women. <laughs> uh, called the Trench Sisters, who ate children. 
Crunchy. Um, <laughs> uh, that it had, uh, that it was well known for its connection to witchcraft, uh, where the devil, the devil, the devil was, <laughs> the devil was summoned. Uh, there was a dead infant wrapped in newspaper found in the basement. Lots of stories. Rich um, stories. So then we see that they've moved in. Uh, they're unpacking. There are some very loud no- uh, voices from next door. Um, we see them eating uh, takeout and beers on the floor. And then uh, Rosemary says, let's make love. It's so weird that bit. Let's make love. Yeah, especially because it's <laughs> then followed by some very like clinical undressing. Where yeah. he's just like struggling so, his jeans oh, off. Is it that time again? Yeah. Um, and then uh, Guy makes a joke about being able to hear the trench, uh, the trench sisters chewing. Yeah. Um, and then we see them painting and rolling carpets out. Uh, Rosemary lines the shelves with some lovely uh, lining paper. Oh, beautiful! Um, yes, a yellow gingham, I believe. Oh, um, this for the, is the for kind the... of detail we're looking for. Thank you. For the, uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to this lasting eight hours. <laughs> the original cut will be four hours. Um, uh, so then we see Rosemary in the laundry room, where she meets her neighbour Terry. Uh, so we find out that Terry is staying with uh, the Castavets, um, and. Uh, she says that the Castavets were good friends with Mrs. Gardenia, who previously lived in their house uh, apartment. Rather, uh, she notices that Terry is, has a luck charm around her neck, or like a necklace, and she says it's a, it's a luck charm, mm. um, and it smells a bit funny. Uh, she uh, tells Rosemary that she was uh, starving, homeless, and on dope, um, mm. and was taken in by the Castavets, who were really uh, uh, sympathetic, looking after her, getting involved. And uh, and that they were like parents to her. I like how she was best friends. Like, they didn't even want to have sex or anything. <laughs> she says that. She says that. About... Like, she thought it was going to be some kinky sex. Oh, thing. <laughs> I missed that. <laughs> um, but I do know what, what kind of paper Rosemary lined her shelves with. <laughs> um, uh, Terry mentions that she has a brother in, uh, in the Navy. And they decide... Uh, Rosemary says that she finds it quite creepy down there, and they decide that they'll do their laundry jaunts together. Laundry um, and, jaundries. Yes. So um, we see uh, Guy and Rosemary kissing in bed, and they hear voices from next door again, and then they hear, hear some um, some strange chanting. Yes. Um, we then see them walking home, possibly from the theatre, mm. um, and there's a big crowd outside of the Bramford, and uh, Terry is lying dead in a big pool of blood, and there's blood, and red blood splashed all up a beetle um, car. Yeah, so <laughs> John Lennon was there. <laughs> no, a tiny little Rabbit. insect beetle. <laughs> all bloody. <laughs> um, and uh, Rosemary is horrified and says, "You know, I know who this is." She speaks to the police um, and confirms that she lived there with the Castavets. And then the Castavets approach. They apparently have been from me a lot of the theatre as well. Um, and this is the first time we see them. So um, Roman is very kind of tall and sort of like stately and uh, Minnie is uh, very flamboyantly dressed. Well, they're both quite flamboyantly dressed. Like, yeah. He's also wearing like a pink suit uh, yeah. with like a red check tie. Um, I was going to say those two, when they first arrived on the scene, it's like, wow. And it also really reminded me of the scene in Ghost World where they see the two Satanists in the cafe. Oh, yeah. And they're both the Satanists look like them, basically. I just, I wonder if that was a connection on purpose, actually. Oh, yeah, maybe. And they say, oh, this is Terry. She's, you know, she's jumped in. She's like, that's not possible. It's a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Minnie has, like, a really rich, like, kind of New York accent. 
Um, and it's kind of like quite deadpan as well. She says that um, that she must have been depressed, but they're like, well, no, she was. She seemed really happy. Um, and then there's the suicide note that's been found as well, and the Castavets confirm that it's definitely her handwriting. And then they seem quite taken aback that um, that Rosemary knows that there there is an ex of kin and that she does have a brother because they say that she doesn't have any family. And she's um. like, no, she mentioned she had a brother in the Navy. And they start showing interest in Rosemary and Guy. So then in bed that night, uh, Rosemary has visions of Terry and the voices from next door kind of bleed into her visions yeah. And they are discussing that you hear the voice of Minnie and Roman, and they're discussing Terry's death. Um, but in her kind of semi-asleep state, she's uh, it's a nun that's yeah. saying that instead. Minnie arrives uh, the next day at the door, and uh, do, uh, sorry to Do we think then that um, because they're basically what they talk about, what, what she ever hears them talking about is like you told her too soon, she wasn't ready, and there's all this stuff about Terry. Um, do you think that Terry did kill herself as a result of finding out, or do you think that they killed her because? Well, this is a dispute that happens on the forums online. <laughs> yeah, and I think either makes sense yeah. because, especially if you think the idea is that she. Uh, for some reason, she wasn't suitable um, to be the mother. Yeah. So they, maybe because of drug use or something, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So they killed her and made it look like suicide. Or, given that in the book, Rosemary was considering jumping out of the window um, as a way to end this, that she also would have done that as well. But yeah, it's unknown. Yeah, um, so Minnie turns up the next day, um, and probably in the top three most iconic scenes from the film, you see her through the this the spy hole yeah. and she's got like a hair up in like a kind of blue. She's all like warped. She looks extra ridiculous as <laughs> yeah. well. <laughs> um, and she's come around to thank uh, Rosemary for saying those nice things about her the day before because she said, oh, you, she spoke so fondly of you, blah, blah, blah. Uh, she says that she was cremated. Minnie kind of barges in and starts like poking around. She's a very nosy neighbour. Yes. And she finds out that the TV room is going to be made into a nursery and she finds out that they're considering having a baby in the not-too-distant future. She starts asking the price of their furniture, um, <laughs> yeah. asking what the husband does, and then invites them over for supper. As she leaves, she looks through um, she looks through Rosemary's mail as well. Oh, yeah! <laughs> um, so uh, when uh, Guy gets home, he says that he was... So he was auditioning for a role that day, and he says that uh, Donald uh, Baumgard uh, got that part... Um, that he's, you know, really sad and annoyed, but um, Rosemary tries to comfort him, but says that uh, that Minnie Castavette had come round and that she's the nosiest person that she'd ever seen and uh, that they should go around. They're going around for supper. And he's like, well, I don't want to. If we start getting friendly with old people, we'll never get rid of them, <laughs> which is some interesting foreshadowing. <laughs> and maybe Rosemary might have heeded his advice. Um, and they say, no, just this once. So they go around to their house. Um, there's a funny moment where... Uh, Minnie is telling Roman not to drip the drinks on the carpet, and then he does, and she gets down and wipes it up. Um, so we find out that Roman is 79, uh, and he does a lot of travelling for both business and pleasure. <laughs> I sound like I'm, uh, I'm uh, L- Linda off, uh, Lydia off the Undateables. Business <laughs> and pleasure. <laughs> uh, Lydia off the Undateables is our arch nemesis, by yes. the way. <laughs> Wash your hair. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, so they have a meal. They eat a very tough steak. A conversation comes up about the Pope, and Roman uh, mentions uh, talks about how there's hypocrisy in organized religion. 
um, which again is interesting given that he is part of an organised religion. Um, They start complimenting Guy's acting, saying that they saw him in the play Luther and uh, that they've seen him on TV as well. And then the women are washing the dishes and they're talking about uh, fertility and Rosemary trying for a baby. So back home, um, Guy, who's been really won over by Roman and Minnie, says he wants to go back uh, the next day uh, to hear more of Roman's stories. And That uh, seems so weird to me, that bit. Like, I don't get it, because I mean, like... But anyway, it helps the storyline. Well, I think he's a, he's he's more... He enjoys being flattered, like they know how to kind of seduce uh, him by yeah, flattering yeah, his, yeah. his acting. Um and then uh, Rosemary points out that they've taken that they'd taken all of their pictures down, and the only one that was up was uh, clearly the wrong size, and the, the the space was discoloured where it had been. Um, so uh, we see Rosemary uh, reclining with a book and listening to music, and uh, Minnie arrives with uh, her friend uh, Laura Louise, <laughs> <laughs> who's an iconic They're old like misery gun. <laughs> they really are. That's definitely going to be us when we're old. <laughs> Um, so uh, they like barge in and Laura Louise like sits on the book that Rosemary was reading and Rosemary says she's not very well she doesn't want them to stay she's saying that she's on the first day of her period Um, and uh, uh, Minnie doesn't heed this uh, hint and gets her knitting out (laughs) (laughs) it's iconic behaviour it's what it is is is. Um, so uh, she gifts Rosemary with the Tannis root, uh, sorry, with the charm necklace. And obviously, uh, Rosemary realises that this might be the same one that was on uh, Terry. Um, And she says that it's got Tannis root in it. It's for good luck. Um, It's very pungent. Um, She shows it to Guy when he gets home and says that it was Terry's. I'm not going to wear it. And it smells. So she puts it away in her, uh, like, dressing table drawer. Um... The uh, and he says, "Oh, you want to you want to wear it." Um, yeah. He's encouraging her, which suggests that he's already been a little bit indoctrinated at this stage, and perhaps the deal's already happened. Yeah, I find well, this is the bit that I like. I mean, like it's a tiny point, but just the, how quickly he's indoctrinated behind the scenes into the whole cult is just like, and obviously they promised him which comes up uh, like things, but. Like, just how quickly it happens is quite odd, I think. I think, yeah, it does. But I think it speaks to how career-obsessed he is, how much of a failure he feels like, how desperate he is to succeed. And also, not to defend him, but he is under the impression that Rosemary will be completely unharmed in this deal, not thinking about the emotional harm of birthing the child of the devil and having (laughs) it taken away from you. Um, But otherwise, she'll be fine. Um, (laughs) Um... so uh, there's a phone call. Um, Guy answers and finds out that Donald Baumgard, who <gasps> got the role, has gone blind and uh, and he's asked to, to take the part instead. He's happy but a bit kind of weirded out by it. He goes off for a walk. Um, uh, so we see uh, Rosemary meeting with Hutch um, and... Uh, she, he's, they're talking about what's happened with, uh, Guy's new role. Um, Hutch says, you know, actors are all a bit self-centered. They're preoccupied because she's saying that he's very distracted. Um, and then, uh, he's looking through the newspaper and he says that he's seen about Terry's death. Um, and he's, he, oh no, he says that, uh, oh, I see there's been another suicide at Happy House. <laughs> um, he's a troll. <laughs> yes. Um, 
And she tells her about Terry saying, oh, you know, they were helping her. They were uh, rehabilitating her. He's like, a bit gay to me. Just yeah, gay he's me. got gay energy. Yeah. Like, I think, like, a, a a bachelor in the 60s whose best friend is, like, an iconic young woman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Um, who's also a bit catty and a bit of a dick. <laughs> um, the... Uh, yeah, and she, so she's saying, oh, you know, they were, they were helping to rehabilitate her. And he says, well, it, he didn't re- rehabilitate her very successfully, it seems. It's like, all right, she's just died. Have <laughs> <laughs> some respect, man. <laughs> um, so we see Guy giving Rosemary some uh, red roses. Um, and uh, he uh, apologizes for his bad behavior and kind of uh, neglecting her a bit. And he says that he just feels very guilty about the way that he's got this role. Um, and he then says, let's have a baby. It's very manipulative. Um, uh, so there's a fire, they're having a romantic meal, and then the doorbell rings, and they hear that it's Minnie and Castavet, uh, Minnie and Castavet, Minnie <laughs> and Roman. Um, and Rosemary's saying, don't let her in, not tonight. And then Minnie arrives with some chocolate mousse, uh, which uh, she calls chocolate mouse. Yes. <laughs> um, and they eat it, and uh, Rosemary says, it's got a chalky undertaste. Um and he kind of loses it with her. And he's like, oh, there's always something wrong. Just eat it. Eat that um, fucking mouse. And obviously it's because he wants her to be drugged. Um, the, uh, so she pretends to eat it, but she actually just uh, scoops it onto a napkin on her lap. Um, a lapkin. And then, a lapkin. <laughs> and then puts it in the bin. Chocolatey lapkin. <laughs> <laughs> Two chalky la- chocolate. <laughs> um, so we see uh, Guy watching... Uh, TV and it's uh, the Pope who's visiting the US at the Yankee Stadium. Uh, she scrapes her stuff into the bin. She has a bit of a funny turn, knocks over a chair, gets a bit dizzy and faint. Um, and then uh, Guy takes her to bed and she kind of collapses. And then she has, then there's a very kind of trippy uh, scene of her kind of half dreaming, half not. And she's on, she's on a yacht uh, with lots of kind of like hot society people. Yeah. Um, She's being undressed on the boat uh, as it pulls away. They're leaving Hutch behind, but they, uh, and she wants them to take uh, him with her, but it's uh, Catholics only, they say. Yeah. Um, There's lots of scenes of the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Uh, We see a typhoon, uh, like waves crashing. Uh, We see uh, the lift operator, who is one of the few black characters who we saw earlier. Um, He, um, he sends her below deck. He's some sort of shipmate or something. Yeah. Um, and then she's surrounded by elderly naked people. Um, <laughs> and she's, uh, she's kind of bound. She's, her feet are bound. She's painted with blood. There's lots of chanting. Someone says, she's awake. Um, and then she keeps saying something about being bitten by a mouse, uh, which I don't really get. Um, and then the devil arrives. Uh, Here he is. <clears throat> yeah. With this big, <laughs> Long skinny fingers like yours, Thank you. um, <laughs> and starts like scratching at her. We see his devil eyes, um, and then there's uh, a, a very implied and obvious rape going on. Yes. And she says, "This is no dream. This is really it's happening." happening. Um, and then there's a bishop figure. There's some talk about forgiveness. He offers his ring to be kissed, yes. as it were. <clears throat> so in the morning, uh, she's a bit feeling a little bit fuzzy and uh, Guy blames it on her for drinking both cocktails and wine Um, and he says don't worry I've trimmed my nails because she's got scratches all over her 
and she's really shocked that even though she was in such a state, he um, he raped her. Yeah. Um, although he wouldn't consider it rape. Um, and he says, yeah, it was kind of fun in a necrophile way, which That's is super gross. gross. Um, and she says, I dreamed of being, of being raped, but it was, it was by someone who was inhuman. Um, so later we see her returning the bowls. Yeah, uh, after she says inhuman, he goes, thanks. Ugh. Gross. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Um, we see her returning the bowls to Minnie Castavet, um, and she's like, you go, you, are you going to the store? Can you get me some eggs? <laughs> Um, you love doing mini I love Minnie. She's one of my. She's a, that's who I do on Snatch Game. And of all the women in the world, was Mary chose you? I'd either do her or the guy that goes, well, that's more on the Bible. <laughs> I haven't decided yet. Either way, I, I like a, a strong accent. Um, uh, so we see Guy practicing on crutches, which is what the role that he's playing uh, requires of him. Um, and Rosemary says, you haven't been looking at me. Why haven't you been looking at me? And this, he's saying, you know, he's just very preoccupied. Um, we see her at Dr. Hill's office, who's her doctor. She's getting uh, an injection or blood taken. Um, and then uh, shortly after she receives a phone call, finding out that she's pregnant, that the baby is bo- is due on June the 28th. The baby is born. The baby is born. <laughs> the baby... The end. Um, <laughs> The baby is... Uh, just uh, calling so you know the baby is born. <laughs> if you just check in, Icarus, you will find a baby. <laughs> Congratulations. Check in, Icarus. Check your privilege. I mean, I mean, Icarus, there will be a baby there. A, baby, a pr- privileged baby. <laughs> <laughs> so he says the baby is due in June, which will be 666. Um, he doesn't say that. And he, uh, he asks her to come in for another blood sample. She's a bit concerned, but he's not too. It's just about blood sugar. Um, and then uh, she tells Guy, they make a little bit of a pact that they're going to have a new open, newfound openness. They're going to talk to each other, uh, not keep things from each other. Um, and Guy immediately wants to tell Minnie and Roman. And she's like, oh, do we have to do it now? And then... Uh, he goes around, tells them they immediately come around with some wine for celebration. And then um, they convince her to go with a different obstetrician. 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 Uh, called Abraham Sapistein, um, who's a dear friend of theirs. And he delivers all of the society babies. Society babies. And she's like, oh, well, Dr. Hill's recommend. They're like, nope, only the best will do. He'll do it for a very reasonable rate, blah, blah, blah. Um, so Minnie goes into the bedroom, uses their phone, calls him. Uh, she, there's an appointment the next day at 11 and they all have a toast. And then in bed we see uh, Rosemary rubbing her belly, considering names, and the best she comes up with is Susan. Um, Susan. <laughs> uh, and then she gets up and she gets the Tannis Root charm out of her um, dresser and puts it on. Um, at Dr. Saperstein's office the next day at 11, uh, promptly, um, we see uh, that he uh, he's recommending uh, her not reading any books about pregnancies, don't take any pills. Don't talk to any other pregnant people. Everyone's pregnancy is different. Um, I'll make you, I'll have uh, Minnie make you up a drink every day um, from her herbarium. Um, to the herbarium! <laughs> um, and that she... <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> Thank you. And that um, she'll have that drink every day. Um, so Guy's rehearsing and gets back from rehearsing, rather, and... Uh, Rosemary has had a haircut from uh, Vidal Sassoon. Uh, he doesn't like it. 
One shot. One shot, and he's a real dick about it. Does he say it's like the worst thing you've ever done or something? <laughs> the biggest mistake <laughs> you've ever made. Yeah. <laughs> like, all right, is it? <laughs> Rich for someone who's just made a series of very dreadful, life-altering mistakes. <laughs> this hair is uh, just the, the straw that brings back. <laughs> you've gone too far this time. I don't think we can come back from this. Um, <laughs> Um, the uh, she's in uh, she's got a, a strange pain. She goes back to uh, Doctor Sapstein Steinstein, and uh, he says she says she's worried it's something something, and he's like, "You've been reading a book. Throw away that book. You've been reading books." Yep. <laughs> and uh, and says it's just a natural expansion of the pelvis that she's experiencing. Mm. Um, so then uh, they're playing Scrabble. And it's the first we see of her iconic powder blue quilted nightgown. Oh, yes, she is. Stunned. Yes. Um, this is when he says that the haircut is the worst ever mistake she's ever made. Oh. <laughs> um, and she makes herself a very lightly blanched uh, steak. <laughs> oh, yeah, so she touches the pan either yeah, side. <laughs> and uh, eats that um, and is writing Christmas cards. Uh, Hutch comes around to visit and points out that she's looking unwell, which is the understatement of the yeah, century. She's like fluorescent white. <laughs> she looks like a little shriveled green ghost. Um, <laughs> she's got like really like dark bags under her eye. Um, and uh, she says most. He says most pregnant women gain weight; they don't lose it. And she says, "Oh, it's perfectly natural." Roman Castavet turns up and there's a close-up of his his ear and it shows that he has, has a piercing. Pierced ear, which yeah. is such a weird detail. <laughs> um, and then uh, Hutch is asking about the Tannis route. Hutch and Roman meet each other. Um, he's, Hutch says he's never heard of it before and that he'll he's going to look it up. He says it, it looks more like mould or fungus. Um, and then he's asking lots of questions. Roman is obviously trying to kind of bat- batter them away. Um, batter them, bat them away. Um, <laughs> batter those sausages away. <laughs> um, and then he says, uh, we'll meet again, I'm sure, as he leaves. And then um, uh, Rosemary says, did you notice he's got a, he had a pierced ear? And he, uh, Hutch says, pierced ears and piercing eyes. <gasps> um, so he's asking lots of questions about the cast of it. And then... Guy arrives, and he, we see that he's still wearing his makeup from his shoot that. or whatever. Um, and there's a mention, there's an allusion to it later by Rosemary, who says he never comes home with his makeup still on. Right. Um, and it's obvious that he's rushed home under uh, instruction from the cast of Ets. And uh, he, uh, Hutch is leaving, he gives him the, his coat, and, and Hutch notices there's only one glove there. And he's like, oh, you must have dropped it, blah, blah, blah. Um, so there's a phone call later. Uh, it's from Hutch, and he says, "Do you ever go out of the house?" <laughs> sort of thing, <laughs> yeah, no, um, which Lunch. is is actually quite uh, quite triggering at the moment. <laughs> yes, no. Um, and he says, "I want to meet you uh, with you tomorrow. I need to tell you something. Let's meet at eleven at the Time and Life Building." Um, and he says, uh, "I haven't found my. Uh, I didn't find my other glove." And then uh, Guy says he's going to go out for ice cream and he goes outside. And apparently, which I missed, but I've I read about this, uh, is you hear the doorbell, at, like, very faintly. So he's obviously gone straight round to Minnie and, Cass- uh, Minnie and Roman's house to tell them that they're meeting the next day. Oh. Um, so uh, the... Uh, 
we see her the next day going to meet Hutch, and she's saying, pain be gone, I will have no more of thee. Yeah. Um, she, uh, she waits for him, he's not there, she makes a phone call from uh, some building, and she speaks to uh, a woman that she hasn't met before who says that he was taken ill, he's in a deep, deep coma at St. Vincent's Hospital, he's unresponsive. Um, while she's out, she bumps into Minnie, um, who <laughs> is... Uh, Christmas shopping and uh, Rosemary starts crying and she's in a lot of pain and Minnie whistles for a taxi with an, a literal whistle which again is iconic yeah. behaviour um, and then takes her home so then we see a New Year's party uh, Minnie's wearing a green feather boa looking iconic <laughs> and it, uh, the year turns they celebrate 1966 uh, and uh, Roman calls it the year one yeah, I noticed that at the time. I was like, what does it mean? But yeah, yeah. it becomes apparent later. It does indeed. So we see her eating, uh, uh, Rosemary that is, eating raw kidney. And she catches her reflection of herself doing it in the toaster and is kind of appalled at herself. Yeah. Um, she's then, um, uh, we see her then having a conversation with Guy about planning a party that's for her young friends. She, uh, and you have to be under 60 to get in. She's <laughs> obviously starting to feel very stifled by being around Minnie and Roman all the time. Um, so Minnie finds out on the day of the party that it's happening. So on the night of the party, Minnie uh, comes around and offers, finds out that the party happened, offers to serve food or take coats or anything <laughs> just to be there. Um, she gives, uh, Rosemary stands up to her and says no, uh, politely. Yes. Um, she uh, Minnie asks why she hasn't taken the drink yet, which she's brought around and she says she'll have it later. Um, and later we see her pouring it down the sink. Um, the tree looks funny, it's like milky herbs. It's like, bleh. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then at the party, one of her friends says that, she, that Rosemary looks like a chalk, <laughs> yes! um, which reminded us both of the line, I, I look like a pencil from Fleabag. <laughs> um, she's got a cramp. She's not having a generally lovely time at the party. No. Uh, she's crying in the kitchen with the gals. Um, she's very afraid that the baby will die. Um, and they say, how long have you had this pain? And she says, since November, which we can assume is like months by that time. time. Yeah. Um, and they say uh, uh, that she needs to go and see Dr. Hill, get a second opinion, because uh, Dr. Sapstein sounds like a sadistic nut. Yes. Um, the uh, She tells Guy that evening after the party um, and, uh, and says that she's been throwing Min- Minnie's drinks out. Uh, Guy is horrified by this, and he refers to her friends who've been telling her that she should get a second opinion. He calls them not very smart bitches. Whoa! He also says it's not fair to Saperstein uh, to to get a second opinion. Um, the next day, um, oh no, it might be immediately. Actually, yeah, she says, immediately, it, immediately yeah. she says that the pain has stopped and that she can feel it moving. She goes, it's moving, it's alive, it's alive! Um, We see them then decorating the nursery, and Rosemary is uh, back uh, drinking Minnie's drink again, Um, obviously feeling better now that she can feel her baby moving. Um, And also, kudos to the Woodhouses for uh, decorating a gender-neutral nursery. And they're beautiful yellow. Yellow with lions. Mm. Lions and tigers, oh my. Oh my, oh my. Oh my, oh my. The, she has. She's also packing her suitcase for the hospital, even though uh, there are three weeks to go, uh, which just kind of highlights her paranoia about it. Um, she gets a phone call and finds out that Hutch is dead, and she feels really, really guilty because she hasn't really spared him a thought since uh, he fell into the coma. Um, the following day, or a day, she is at the funeral, and she uh, 
she speaks briefly to Hutch's daughters, um, which is surprising that he yeah, has daughters. Tendency. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he also meets the woman that he spoke to on the phone, who's called Grace, and she uh, says that he did come around, he did uh, regain consciousness from his coma before he died, and asked that she pass on this package to Rosemary, and said uh, and with a message that the name is an anagram, and that's all she knows. Um, so uh, Minnie visits as uh, Rosemary arrives home, looks at the parcel. Um, it's like, oh, Grace is one of my favourite names. <laughs> um, I sounded a bit like uh, Alaska doing Mae West. <laughs> oh, why don't you come on over and fuck me in the ass sometime? <laughs> um, that's what Minnie says. Um, and then Rosemary uh, puts a strap on and pegs her. Yeah, just pegs yeah. her wild. Um, the, uh, so then we see, once Minnie leaves... Um, uh, Rosemary uh, scatters the Scrabble tiles out on the floor to try and... Uh, oh, maybe not at this stage, anyway. But anyway, she looks at the book. It's called All of Them Witches. Um, and she sees that the... Uh, it's a book about witchcraft, obviously. She sees that um, the Hutch has underlined some certain passages, um, including a bit about Devil's Pepper, which is a kind of fungus, uh, which we can assume is Tannis Root. Um, and also something about Adrian Mercado, who we had heard about earlier, who's the man uh, who was kind of starting a coven who previously lived there. Mm. Um, and uh, she then gets the Scrabble pieces out and rearranges them uh, from all of all of uh, all of them witches. Um, and the words that she comes up with, uh, the phrases she comes up with, is "comes with the fall," "elf shot lame witch," <laughs> and "how is hell fact me." <laughs> um, she then sees. Uh, a bit that uh, that's been underlined, which is saying that um, Adrian had a son called Stephen Mercado, and she puts he's his name is underlined under a picture of them, and he she rearranges uh, the tiles for Stephen Mercado into the name Roman Castavet, um, and then she goes and puts the chain on the door. Um, the later we see Guy back there, um, and then. Uh, she tells Guy about her new theory and we find out that the dates all align that it would make sense if he was 79 that he was the son Um, and Guy kind of brushes it off by saying what a crazy geezer no wonder uh, Roman changed his name and then he looks through the book and it's all about covens and sabbaths blood and flesh of babies and flesh uh, of babies and he uh, he takes the book and he puts it up high on the shelf Uh, we then see uh, her back at Dr. Sapstein's office and he's sympathetic about her worries about the baby and says, uh, you don't need to drink the drink anymore. I'll give you some pills, mm. um, which is what she's wanted all along, although they're probably not the kind of pills she was hoping for. Mm. Um, he then says she, she also shares uh, her concerns about uh, Roman and Minnie and Dr. Sapstein, who seems very helpfully to suggest that... Um, that he he that Roman has a terminal illness is only has a matter of months left, and he always wanted to go travelling again before he died, but he was staying until the baby was born, and he, he says that he's going to suggest that he goes immediately. We then see them uh, saying goodbye to Minnie and Roman, who are getting in a cab to go to the airport to go travelling. Um, they say goodbye, take care, all that sort of stuff. And then <laughs> those sorts of things. all those, you know, just general goodbyes. Um, <laughs> and then we find out that Guy has put the book uh, in the garbage, mm. and Rosemary is really upset because it was a gift from Hutch, and she's saying, "Oh, he's saying, oh, I didn't really think about that. I just didn't want you reading that anymore." 
Um, we then see the scene of her kind of walking in the road, looking a little disoriented. disoriented. Um, and she intentionally drops the charm necklace down the drain and she goes to the bookshop and buys some more books about witchcraft. Um, she's sat in the back of her cab and she's reading one of the books and she sees a bit about how um, how covens would uh, paralyse and blind their victims and which obviously makes her think of Donald Baumgarten. Mm. Um, and then also part of them using items of clothing of a victim as part of a curse, which makes her think of Hutch and the glove. Um, we then, uh, she calls Donald um, to speak to him. Um, and this is the bit that where he's voiced by Tony Curtis. Yeah. And he says, oh, I'm okay. I've only broken six glasses. Um, and she says, I'm sorry, I didn't come to visit you after you know you fell blind um i didn't visit you when uh guy visited you and he's like oh no guy didn't visit me we went for drinks before this happened and she's like oh uh, i i need to uh return the thing that you were missing from that, that thing you know and he's like oh do you mean my tie oh you know you don't need to return that we swap ties and she realizes that that's cursed things happened with him um, so she then packs those uh, books that she's bought into her hospital suitcase and leaves to see uh, Dr. Sapstein. Sapstein, Stein. Um, she gets to the... Um, she's in the waiting room and she's very, very sweaty. It's 94 degrees out, she says. She sees the Time magazine with Is God Dead on the cover and she's speaking to the receptionist who says, oh, your new perfume is an improvement on your old one, if you don't mind me saying. So actually, I do mind you saying that. That's a bit of a cunty thing yeah, to say. Um, you stink. Um, and she's, well, I always thought you stank. <laughs> and she says, yes, yes, I, I, I got rid of it. I, I prefer this. And he's like, well, I hope you can convince Dr. Saperstein to get rid of it too. And she finds, she realises that he's got that herb in his, or that devil's fungus. Devil's fungus smell. His, uh, it sounds like an STI, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> Oh, you've come down with an awful case of the devil's fungus. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh, so she instantly leaves without seeing Doctor Sapstein, and she goes to a phone booth. Uh, she calls Doctor Hill's office, uh, saying it's an emergency. Um, he's not there. They're going to call. He's going to call back to the phone booth. Uh, she's waiting there, and she's she's pretending to be uh, on the phone so that nobody else <laughs> uses no, the phone. Yes, yes. Oh, you oh did he? That say. did he say that? Oh. He did, did he? <laughs> um, and then uh, the secretary calls back to confirm, and she's getting anxious because she's waiting and she needs it to be quick. And then she kind of muttering under her breath, "All of them, all of them, witches." And she uh, she touches her valley, and she's like, "I'll kill them before I let them touch you." Um, and then Doctor Hill does call back. She tells him about Sapstein. Uh, uh, says that they're coming for me. I know this sounds weird, but there's a plot. I need to be there right now. And then there's a man loitering outside of the phone box, and you can just see him from behind. And that is William Castle. <clears throat> the the music kind of gets more and more demented at this uh, st- stage. Although I probably shouldn't say demented, but discordant, let's say. Sure. Um, and she gets a taxi. Uh, she asks the taxi driver to uh, to wait to make sure that she gets in all right. So she goes into Dr. Hill's office and she's telling him all of these kind of wild things. And she says, you know, uh, I think Guy's in on it too. He sleeps in pyjamas. Um, he's got, um, he's kind of sold himself out for success in, in place of our baby to be used in a ritual. Um, uh, she tells him about the spell on the actor. 
Um, they say they have a coven, they want my baby, and Dr. Hill seemingly very sympathetically says, it certainly seems that way. I know, it's um, like, really? And then <laughs> uh, she says, he says, she says that she thinks her doctor, Abraham Sapstein, is in, in it, on it too, and he knows uh, that doctor. She offers her a uh, space in the hospital and takes her into a little room for a lie down beforehand. Um, while he arranges uh, the bed. And then um, she says to herself, God bless Dr. Hill. And then uh, says, also says, monsters, unspeakable, unspeakable. Um, uh, she then has a dream of her showing a baby to all of her young friends and seeming happy and lovely, obviously thinking that this is this is getting to a nice place in her life now. Um, and then the doctor arrives. Uh, comes back and wakes her up and then he ushers in Guy and Dr. Sapstein into the office um, and they say come with us quietly or we'll take you to a mental hospital essentially and uh, says no one's going to hurt you Um, and Guy can't even like look at her but he is obviously starting to feel a bit bad about this whole situation a little bit bad about what he's done which uh, as as well he might yes Um, she uh, so when they get back to the uh, to the apartment as they're about to get into the lift, she she intentionally drops her purse and everything scatters. And the two men and the lift attendant all bend down to pick things up. And she goes up in the lift shouting, go to hell! Um, you promised them the baby! And then they're like chasing her up. And she gets into the flat, locks herself in there. And then she gets on the phone uh, to someone. And then we see in the background some men tiptoeing past. Yeah, sneaky. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and then the whole coven, the whole gang, all of... Uh, the Castavets and their the Castavets and their friends and Guy and Laura Dr. Sapperstein, Laura Louise, for example, they all uh, come into the bedroom and pin her down. Uh, she's given a, an injection, like a sedative, and they say she's in labour. And uh, the friend calls back, um, and Guy's just like, "No, she's not here," even though she's like screaming. screaming. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she wakes up. Um, everyone's gone except for Guy. And Guy tells her that it's a boy. She asks if it's all right. She says he says yes. Then she uh, she wakes up again. She's obviously still in a, in a daze. Um, Lara Louise is sat by her bed, obviously watching her reading the Reader's Digest with a very big magnifying glass. <laughs> and she gets a fright when uh, when Rosemary wakes up. She asks to see the baby. Lara Louise looks very concerned and says she's going to go and get Doctor Abe. So. Uh, Guy then tells her with uh, Dr. Sapstein that there were some com- complications, nothing that will affect any future births, but the baby is dead. And then she's saying, you're lying, it didn't die, you're witches. Um, then she wakes up again another time, and we see Guy uh, saying, wow, you really had the prepartum crazies. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, and she's kind of, uh, she's not really saying much, but he says he's got to go. He's got somewhere to be because he's famous now, he says. And then she asks to see his left shoulder. He shows the shoulder. There's nothing there. Um, then she's watching TV another time and hears some distant crying. She turns off the air conditioner so she can hear it. And then a woman, another woman from the coven comes in and serves her some food, saying that she hasn't heard any baby crying. And then she gives uh, Rosemary a pill, which Rosemary hides uh, in the kind of bedhead thing. And then she's she pumps breast milk. Uh, she finds out from Guy that some new people have moved in uh, 
down the hall or upstairs or something, and they do have a baby, which explains the baby crying. Explains everything. Or doesn't. And then Laura Louise, another time, brings in the uh, the tray with the breast pump and the tablet, and she asks what is being done with her breast milk, and she's like, oh, we're just throwing it away. And then she goes to put a dirty spoon in the breast milk, and Laura Louise is like, no, no, don't put it in there! <laughs> it's just messy. Um, so then... Uh, no one's around apart from Rosemary, and she goes to the um, to the closet uh, that's at the end of the hall, and she moves the towels and takes down the shelves that are lined in a lovely yellow gingham backing paper, and she gets a knife from the kitchen. Um, she looks through the keyhole and sees that, that there's a door behind the shelves. She sees that it leads into the Castavets, um apartment. Uh, Guy comes back into the apartment, and she hides in the nursery, um, and there's a nice bit where the crib is rocking and she stops it with the blade of the knife, which I really like. Oh. Um, she then creeps into the apartment next door. There's a big uh, painting as she goes in of a church on fire, uh, which suggests why they would have taken all the paintings down <laughs> early, knowing that some uh, Christians were coming around. Um, and she walks very slowly into like the kind of main living area where all of the coverners sat around um drinking and having a nice time. Laura Louise spots her first and screams. Um, and then Rosemary spots a black crib that's kind of draped with black... Very flamboyantly yes. black drapes and vertical crucifix. Yes, as a mobile. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then over the fireplace is a big portrait of Adrian Mercato, who we know to be Roman's father. Um, and she... Uh, the, the, the group obviously fall silent and watch as she goes up to the crib. She looks uh, into it and then the most iconic bit from the film is where she, you uh, don't see the baby, but you see her response to it. And she says, what have you done to it? What have you done to its eyes? And there's like weird, like kind of discordant yeah. strings. Um, a great moan. A great moan. <clears throat> and Adrian said, not Adrian, that's the baby. Um, <laughs> He's the <same>. Hey girl. <laughs> hey mama. Yes, we... <laughs> <laughs> called me mother <laughs> um, Roman says he has his father's eyes um, and we saw his father's eyes during the yes. traumatic rape scene um, The uh, and then Adrian says uh, no that's the baby Roman says uh, that Satan came up from hell and begat a mortal woman um, and they all say hail Satan and then she's obviously like freaking out, and Rosemary, in a way that's ca- not Rosemary, Minnie, in a way that's kind of like trying to comfort her almost, is just like, and this is my favorite line from the film, is just like, <laughs> he chose you, Rosemary, out of all the women in the world, he chose you to be the mother of his son. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and she's saying, it can't be. And they're all like, look at his hands, look at his feet. Um, and the uh, the knife that she dropped earlier on the floor, she picks it up um, and uh, Roman is saying, God is dead, God is dead and uh, Roman takes to one side and says, be a mother, you don't have to join Um, Mindy and Laura Louise are too old to look after him Um, and she says, oh God and Laura Louise admonishes her for using the word God (laughs) and and Mindy, who we find out is the the other woman, uh, says uh, you shut up. Uh, she's his mother. Show her some respect. Yeah. Um, they're kind of like weirdly like kind of... Uh, like like kind of... Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, 
This was not that weird since it's uh, the unholy mother. <laughs> yes. Um, and then she, uh, Guy speaks to her and says, "They promised me uh, you wouldn't be hurt." And he does seem kind of gen- genuinely quite kind of uh, full of regret. And she <laughs> a little bit regretful. Yeah. And she, this is the second worst mistake <laughs> since your hair. <laughs> And then she spits in his face. Uh, there's a Greek man there. There's a Japanese man taking pictures. It's like kind of obviously like a big, lots of people from around the world who are part of this uh, coven. Um, and uh, Minnie offers to get her some tea. And she's like, what's in it? And she's like, it's just Lipton's tea. Yeah. Um, and then Rosemary hears the baby crying. She gets up. Uh, Lara Louise is really like violently rocking the crib. Yeah. And she's like... You're rocking him too fast. And then uh, Roman says, let Rosemary rock uh, the baby. And uh, Laura Louise walks past and sticks her tongue out. Yeah. <laughs> bratty baby. Yeah. And then the film ends with her rocking the baby. Yeah. Um, Looking at it in a kind of like in a loving way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the film ends. La, 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 la. Oh, God. <laughs> So, Sean, do you think uh, we should, for a change, talk about representation? I I don't think we should. No, okay, skip it. The the end. (laughs) (laughs) A hundred pumpkins, the end. A hundred pumpkins, the end. Um, Yes, that's. That's. So, women. This is a strange one, I think, isn't it? The thing is, like, I, like, I think that, I, I think you'll disagree with me on this, but I think that Rosemary is kind of quite childlike and quite naive and, like, quite kind of, like, her voice is quite kind of, like, silly, like she's a little girl all the way through, like... Yeah, I think intentionally so as well. And th- there's a there's a scene that I, uh, or, like, a little moment in a scene that I hadn't really picked up on before, but it's, that made me think that, which was when she... I mean, she's definitely like that the whole way through, but she, um, until the end, when Guy returns home and she, like, r- skips up to him and puts her... It's like, there's something really... Childlike. Yeah, and I, th- I think you. just, like, I think she's kind of intentionally infantilised by the way... Infantilised? Yeah. Now, when you kill your child, that's, that's infanticide. infanticide. <laughs> um, A delicious fizzy drink. <laughs> 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 mm. um, <laughs> the uh, and the way she's dressed is very like like they put her in like little kind of shapeless like kind of I know so it's like very kind of sixties but yeah. yeah and um, especially when she cuts her hair short she looks like so like, yeah young. I also think like the fact that she's like a very kind of diminutive figure and like very tiny and petite also kind of adds to that as well but um yeah it's just like all the little whispery bits she does herself so I can just a little giggling and smiling yeah. all the time. It's, just so... it's interesting actually I read that in an interview years later Mia Farrow said that she didn't like the character of Rosemary because she thought she was too much of a victim yeah um and I see that but I also see why she's willing to trust her husband though like I I don't think that's a flaw and I don't think that's necessarily part of, like, why wouldn't you want to believe the person that you love? Um, yeah, I mean, like, she's kind of, like, isolated from everyone. Yeah. Um, and maybe her kind of, like, ch- naivety is the reason why she was the perfect 
vessel yeah. for their plan, as opposed to someone who's like hardened and streetwise like Terry. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the I think it's interesting because it, this is a, f- a film based on a book written by a man, and the film is made by an abusive uh, man. Yeah. Um, the but I do I I actually think it's I, I think it's weirdly empowering in the way that lots of films about women horror films about women are, which is that the woman is right. The woman is right from the start and is lied to and gaslit. But she ultimately knows what's happening, but she's yeah. having to suppress it because everyone around her, even her doctors, are telling her that she's wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think she, I think she does kind of take a lot of control towards the end. Um, she leaves. She yeah. Uh, and throughout, she's hiding the pills. Like she's, uh, I think she's a great. I think she's like really, like layered. I think there's, I think she's not just one thing or another. Yeah, and and also I really like that her like um, I don't see at the end that her kind of like I see her warmth towards this like little devil baby with like cloven hooves. <laughs> she still has this like maternal kind of like yeah. instinct, and I see that as like a, a a positive thing. Yeah, would it pass the Bechdel test? I can't. Yes. Do they talk? They talk. They talk about like her being. Like her husband a lot, though. They do, but like her and Terry have a chat. Her and Minnie talk a lot about lots of things. Oh, yeah, that's Um, true. Yeah, I think it would. And I think, I also think it's a film that's carried by the women. Like, I, you know, I I don't think the men are memorable characters. Like, Roman is, but it only by association to Minnie. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But it's carried by, like, and it's also carried by brilliant performances by women as well. Yeah. Um, Like, Minnie and Rosemary are the reason that this film is so brilliant, I think. Yeah, I Um, agree. The, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's good. I think it's, yeah. I don't have any major problems with it. I think it's also very reflective of what, like, a 60s couple dynamic would probably be like between a man and his, a woman and his husband, especially if his husband was, like, some kind of, like, successful big shot sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah, I see that. Um, representation of people of colour. We were trying to remember. <laughs> yeah. We can count three, yes. as far as you can remember. Yeah. So... Two of them is in service sort of jobs, so there's like the taxi driver and the lift operator. But then at her young people's party, um, there's a young black woman. Yeah, um, who's very beautiful. And in fact, all of the women there are very beautiful. Yeah, like, very like the young people party looks pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's not. Um, I mean, I don't really. Is the is the occult quite a white thing? Because, like, as in, like, kind of, like, Satanism. Because I think, if I think of, like... I, I don't know. I don't know enough about well, it. Really, but... mm. <clears throat> that is a great question. Mm. Um, I think the occult, as a giant umbrella term, um, would encapsulate like, voodoo and things mm. like that. So that but um, in terms of Satanism, that was obviously created by um, Anton LaVey. Um, and he was white, and as I've never seen any people of colour in any of the pictures of their kind of, Mm. like, coven, but also the Satanism that's portrayed in this film is not the Satanism, it's more like devil worship. Um, 
I'm not sure there's much documentation on the diversity uh, <laughs> HR policy. Who was the diversity <laughs> and inclusion officer? Um, the, um, yeah, I, the, oh, and also I guess the other reason why it's very, very white is because it's supposed to be these like high society rich oh, yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess it it's it is probably quite reflective of the fact that it the, the rich powerful people were white in yeah. the 60s and when well, probably still now in yeah. new york um so yes not, not wonderful representation from that perspective no i'm just trying to think of any disability representation well it's, uh, uh, yes in the uh donald baumgarten is rendered blind as a punishment as like a curse yeah that's um, not great no but also it's yeah, yeah it's, it's, that happens. Um, that's... Queer representation? Uh, Hutch. Hutch. <laughs> I, I must say, there's no like kind of direct queer representation in this, but in terms of like queer icons, this film has two in Minnie and Rosemary, or more Mia Farrow more. Like, yeah, yeah. They're, they're like just both such kind of like iconic figures for queers i think yeah like I, I, I the whole thing about like um like the way that rosemary redecorates the flat in a way that's from magazines and they're all like in awe of how beautiful mm. she's done it like so it's super like gay yeah <laughs> like, and also like minnie is like uh, the campest horror character i can think of like maybe yeah. followed by uh zelda oh. uh, rubenstein yeah um oh. But yeah, like she, I, I just, I, I wonder if um, a modern horror film could ever cast someone as silly in such a menacing role. And I'd really love to see it because I think, well, we said this before, like I think campness has a really, really important place in horror. And this is where it's done perfectly because this film is camp as tits. Like yeah. Lara Louise is another like camp figure. Uh, uh, Something that I really enjoy actually is that the Satanists are all like wear like wear colourful flamboyant clothes and it's kind of like um they're more kind of like it makes them kind of more outside of society, but in a less like um obvious way than if they were all goths. You know? <laughs> like yeah. it's just kind of like they're all just kind of flamboyant and living their best lives, which is like Yeah, and they're all they're also all like elderly, yeah. which is quite so apparently uh Polanski wanted to cast like for the coven want to cast like old kind of Hollywood stars as all of the coven. Um, uh, and some of them are, but he did, he wasn't familiar enough with like Hollywood to know who they were. So he got other people to cast them based on drawings. Uh, um, okay. The, uh, yeah. And this is one of the many things that that mini series that we watched got terribly wrong is that it stripped out the campness and it made them all like high society in a way where they weren't eccentrics. They were just like rich, cool, you know, well-dressed, fancy cars. And that's not interesting or fun. It's no. just like, um, yeah. So I, I think this this film fits neatly into a queer canon of sorts. Yes. But definitely dominates in the camp canon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just trying to think about, like, you know, um, the, you know that film The Visit with the old people? That they, Where uh, she crawls really yeah, fast. Crawls really yeah, fast. that's an M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah, I was just thinking about whether the grandmother in that was quite campy, but I can't remember. Yeah, she's... Actually, I think in general, Shyamalan is his films are all well. Maybe not Unbreakable and Six Sense, but his later films are all very camp. Like The Happening is camp as tits. Titty camp, camp. It really is. And uh, The Village Lady in the Water is pure theatre. Like that, yeah. I think he actually does camp really well. But it's also seen him being really critically panned as well. Yeah. But I I find it quite difficult to critique him too heavily because I do love all of his films. Yeah. Um, 
I just think there must be other ones with old, like, campy old women who are just a bit crazy behind the scenes. Yeah. But anyway, that was the one that popped to mind. But yes. Oh, well, I wonder if... I mean, she's not she's not as flamboyant, but do you know... What is her, what's the name of the character? The woman in all of the Insidiouses. Oh, right. Uh, God, she's quite name? funny, yeah. She's, she's got a camp quality about her, I think, but I yeah. think it's also just because she's quite hammy and because yeah. we were later to B-movies, like yeah, horror yeah, B-movies, yeah, yeah, yeah. but... Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, what we're doing now, the, the awards. awards. The yeah. old award Please. <coughs> the awards, the awards, the awards. One day I will teach you this tune and you I will know it. I don't want to know it on purpose. <laughs> I've noticed you've been will it willfully obstreperous relearning the Rosemary's Baby lullaby. Oh, actually, in a little backstory of uh, Bloody Mary's, the, the, the original idea was that we were going to try and sing the theme tune, um, and we were going to put like a spooky echoey effect on it. And Sean was desperately trying to teach me this song, but I kept just going into <laughs> so instead we did the like whistle song from Twisted Nerve and. Kill Bill. <laughs> la, 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 la. But imagine it with a spooky effect. And then we realised it was way too absurd. <laughs> it was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we're now the new, the, the new camp in uh, horror. <laughs> uh, so, the awards. Yes. Do you want me to go first? You're hosting the awards. I'm hosting the awards. Yes. Okay, so... What was your best character? <laughs> so, mine was like a blink and you'll miss him. Um, as all the best back, uh, best characters are. When Terry has... When her body is lying on the pavement, there's a bit where a man walks in the background and looks with a shocked face and then just keeps walking. <laughs> <laughs> he was my favourite character. <laughs> um, what about yours? I mean, mine's less of a character and more of an object. Oh, yes. Um, and it's the the crib that the baby's in. <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. I could see you sleeping in that. <laughs> in, your, in your little... You should well, also... Black, you would also like, really suit... Like, drapes and, like, an inverted <laughs> You would also really suit Rosemary's quilted uh, powder blue yes, nightgown. Uh, <laughs> beautiful looks. Uh, but, yeah, I'm just, like, obsessed with how ridiculous it is. <laughs> I think it's appropriate. It's appropriate. Uh, what was your spoopiest bit? Um, so my spoopiest bit was perhaps not the most obvious, but I think when I first... So I first watched this before I read the book. Um, and when I first watched it, the bit that got me the most like, oh, it wasn't necessarily scared, but like kind of the, the tensest bit was where she wakes up thinking that she's going to be taken to the hospital and Dr. Sapstein and Guy are there. Oh. I found that really like, because he kind of wanted to. Yeah, it's more like, oh no. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems pretty obvious, but just like the scene where like she's being taken down to be, to be uh, raped by yeah. Satan. Um, and that often around with the yeah. That often makes the lists of like the best scenes in horror films. Yeah, um, I see why. But uh, yes, yeah, so do I. But I'd argue there are better ones in this film because I think it's just. Perfect scene after perfect scene. Perfect. 
Um, well, oh, I also really love the way we didn't say this, but the way that Mini Castavet says pregnant. Pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so you're pregnant? Pregnant. She says it in other words as well, which I can remember more, but yeah. Pregnant is the best one. <laughs> and uh, chocolate mouse. <laughs> chocolate mouse. Uh, what was your lolzest moment? Uh, I've just said, this is a cop-out, but I've just said Mini Castavet and Lara Louise in general. Yeah. But I think, upon reflecting back, maybe the bit where Lara Louise is reading the Reader's Digest with the big magnifying glass and gets a fright. This is my one! Is it? <laughs> it's so, so hilarious that this kind of like Satanist looking after this woman gets a fright that she jumps out of her skin just from like a woman waking up and quietly saying, Hello? <laughs> and, and I think this is part of the brilliance of the coven because they're just normal old people yeah. like with, the, with bad eyesight and reading their funny little magazines and stuff. <laughs> um, best death. So I think there are only two deaths that happen in this and they both happen off screen. Yeah. Uh, Terry. Yeah. Uh, which is better. Chocolate orange. Yes, Terry's chocolate orange. Uh, death. Death. And then we hear of Hutch's death as well, which is a bit boring. Yeah, so it has to um, be the best and the worst yes, that way around. That's what I would argue. I would argue that also me too. Yes, uh, queerest. I didn't put anything for this, but maybe you've convinced me that Hutch is the queerest. And <laughs> <laughs> his, like, cattiness. <laughs> yeah, I think he's just so very kind of campy and bitchy. And, like, the fact that he knows about, like, witches is so, so not very heterosexual. Is it because he reminds you of you? Oh, my God. <laughs> Hutch. Um, yeah, and also his relationship with, uh, with uh, Rosemary. I feel like in the 60s, I can imagine, like, queer elders, like, kind of taking on quite parental roles yeah. with like young vulnerable people that they want to look after and care for yeah um, I, mean, I, I thought he was and then you just reminded me of the daughters but I mean that can happen that can that, by some un- ungodly twist of fate oh, Satan himself came up <laughs> came up where <laughs> Uh, speaking of which, uh, what was your sexiest moment? <laughs> uh, sexiest, oh, sexiest character, character is Mia Farrow. No. What? Uh, Do you not think she's sexy? Not in this. She's like a like a little child who's haunted. But when she first gets a new haircut, <laughs> who's your sexiest character? Well, I was struggling, but I I, I had I had Laura to Louise. Sort of, not Laura Louise. <laughs> um, the husband, who's like kind of hot, but. I don't think that you can say Rosemary is sexy in this. I would say, like, if you ask people of, like, our parents' generation to name, like, an iconic 60s film beauty... That's fine. I think Mia Farrow in this film, where she looks like an absolute corpse. Like, but she doesn't look like a corpse from the beginning. Sexy corpse, baby. <laughs> I thought you'd Can't be on board with sexy corpse. F- f- fuck a corpse, sure. <laughs> necrophile. <laughs> um, let me just necrophile my nails. Um, I know I, I firmly stand behind Rosemary how being a sexist character. How firm. <laughs> and how behind. <laughs> So yeah, okay, wow. Um, so Sean wants to say some skeleton. <laughs> um, uh, the so yeah, what 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 are we thinking about pumpkins? So this is the final of my three favorite fil- horror films. The trifecta, um, and I feel no shame in giving it another five pumpkins. Another five? Not another five. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think this. I, 
it really, really pains me that this film's legacy is ruined by Roman Polanski so much. But aside from that, sure. it's such a brilliant film. And it's, yeah, I, I love the kind of mythology around it. I love the performances. I love the music. I love how it's shot. I love the the apartment. Everything just looks beautiful and brilliant. It's campy. It's funny. It's terrifying. Uh, it's got so many iconic moments that it really stands to the test of time. And I adore it. So yeah, five five unequivocal pumpkins. Oh, wow, I'd love to see those pumpkins. <laughs> um, I, I will give it four because I'm not a ravenous beast as such as you. But um, but it's obviously an iconic film, and it's just yeah, it's beautiful, and there's just so much like weird detail woven through it. It's just uh, it's just a real romp. Mm. Um, yeah, and it's weird because, like, not if you think about it, not really a lot happens, like, until you know. I was thinking about what you said about The Wicker Man about it not being a horror film until the end, and this has been described. There was a review that said this is the best horror film where nothing scary happens, and um, yeah, and, and it also makes me think of Saint Maud, which is not oh, necessarily a horror film until well. the last. <laughs> And I think there's something, in, I, I do think there's like a, an element of dread that goes throughout, which is the kind of thing I find really like, that really makes me anxious. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it's it's very understated, yeah, considering what if, it's about. Uh, like we said about some more, like if you didn't know it was a horror and you were watching it, like how far in you'd have to get before you were like, hmm, I wonder if something awful's going to happen. Yeah. And I think there's something about that as well, which is just like, we're not used to seeing... British horror as much so I think with Saint Maud it's just like oh this is a gritty a gritty uh, sort of seaside town drama it's bleak and grey and miserable and a horror whereas I think um, yeah I, I think this is like a really I, I feel like there's was, there was a lot of films that came out within the space of like five or six years that are like so like The Exorcist um, Twisted Nerve Don't Look Now The Wicker Man This and probably countless others that I'm forgetting, but that all came out within a very concentrated time, which I would argue is perhaps the pinnacle of horror. But um, the they're all very slow films mm. and very story-heavy films, and I think that's something that's been really lost now, where we don't see really story-heavy films. I think uh, Midsummer and Hereditary are good examples that break that a bit and are actually very story heavy but they're not they're not slow in the same way because it's they have to kind of put in those jumps and those moments to keep like a contemporary yeah. horror audience satisfied and that's interesting actually because the omen is the other one that came out at the same sort of time yeah mm. like whether that kind of like slow pace horror just doesn't really fit now like it, like in the way that people's attention span well sound like an old person but like you know just like people say that people's attention spans have gone down but then also we're being given films which is so high paced yeah um yeah it's interesting and, and I guess something like well actually I feel like a bit of a hypocrite saying this because I think you know the uh the haunting of Bly Manor yeah that was like fucking treacle that was so oh, slow God. um but it maybe we'll see. It. I mean, the first one was quite slow as well, but there were big, jumpy, scary bits throughout. Mm. But also, that's a series which is a different way of consuming. Blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, and it's interesting actually. The Omen remake, which I've spoken about a few times, but the I think that's a really great remake because it manages to retain a lot of the brilliant elements of the first film with some tweaks, some improvements, some things that aren't as good. But then also 
it interjects with these scary moments that don't appear in the first one. So like she keeps having nightmares that are yeah. very jumpy, and it's like they, they've it's almost as if they realise like we can remake this because it's brilliant and deserves another go. But there needs to be something extra because yeah. audiences expect it from horror. It's funny because I was reflecting on maybe why I don't like uh, The Omen. And I think it might be because it's an evil little boy rather than an evil little girl. Mm. And the evil little boys are like overrepresented in the world anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do love an evil little girl. That's your fame, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love The Omen, but I also just like, I really like, the, I, I really enjoy those kind of, the way those films are paced and that whole kind of like, mm. that whole kind of period. But I'm really pleased you gave it four pumpkins. Did you think I was going to give it a stinky pumpkins? No, I, I knew you loved it, but I, uh, yeah, I, I, you're, you're a bit stingy with your pumpkins. <laughs> <laughs> and you're overly generous. Well, you know what? You know what? <laughs> when, when people are like, oh, I never give it four marks, I never give anything four marks. It's just like, well, how, what, then why is that a measure for no, something that's like, I love horror films, so I'm going to give them lots of pumpkins, unless they're the Babadook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair. Well, well done, Rosie's well baby. Rosie's baby. Uh, well, wow, Be- wow, wow, wow. Best of luck with uh, with, uh, the, with that baby. With the rest of Adrian's life. <laughs> yeah. Time for the spook I never know where these bits are going. <laughs> um, so this is a very old, old story um, from 1889. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's... Um, it apparently, well, I, one of the references I saw said that it inspired Rosemary's Baby, but I don't know. It's about a demonic baby, basically. Um, so I get a little backstory about what's going on here. Um, there was a woman called uh, Jane Adams, uh, and she uh, she created in Chicago um, a kind of like a shelter for immigrants and things, and. Uh, She's looking to improve the neighbourhood in Chicago where all the slums were. Um, and within four years... Um, you, you, I know that name because um, it's a historic house that you can visit now, isn't yes, it? Jane whole, Adams' whole house. Yes. Yeah, I follow it on Facebook, oh. I think, or something. I've, yeah, I, I've, I'm aware of that. Okay, so yeah. So, um, so yeah, she set up the house uh, to sort of like house all these people who like impoverished immigrants, basically. And she built it into like a club and a little nursery, gymnasium, uh, dispensary, uh, lots of lovely things. Um, and by 1907, the complex had 13 buildings and a children's summer camp outside the city. Mm-hmm. Um, Hull House made Jane Adams an international figure. Um, uh, also, during the time of its existence, um, on All Hallows Eve uh, in October, well, 31st of October, that's what it is, <laughs> um, in 1913, an article came out in the Chicago Examiner, it says Screamed, uh, I don't think it screamed, it was just a headline, um, <laughs> Devil Child Still Sought by Thousands, All Over the West Side in Chicago. Um so it stated, uh, so the story was spreading yesterday in a score of forms. 
the demon baby, in inverse commas, was supposed to be at Hull House, where Miss Jane Addams and other residents spent the whole day denying it. One understood that the baby had horns, another that it spoke, this is my favourite, spoke in a serpentine shrewd brain. Um, is that how all babies speak? <laughs> what does it mean? Um, another that it laughed in the cynical way of a bitter old man. Uh, Stop laughing at me, you cynical baby! <laughs> cynical baby man! With your serpentine shrewd brain! Um, <laughs> Um, so the Devil Baby actually uh, started, the story started in September, five weeks before the press reported it. Um, by then, thousands of people had come in search of the, the monster, as it says, uh, word reaching them, as Adam described it, through the old method of passing news from mouth to mouth. I don't think that's what she meant. Sexy. I think she meant word of mouth, maybe. I've got a secret for you. <laughs> but I can only tell you mouth to mouth. <laughs> so the first that the residents of Hull House knew about the, anything about the devil baby, um, apparently, um, was when uh, three old Italian women came to the door, um, knocking on it, banging on it, saying that they absolutely believed uh, that there was a devil baby being hidden there. <laughs> um, <laughs> they said, we want to see the devil baby, they shouted at the door, um, uh, pushing their way inside. Um, and they said, where is it? Um, and the young woman was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and they were like, the devil baby, we know it's here. Um, and one woman held up two fingers in the form of horns on her grey head. Um, another held out a wrinkled hand. And this is me reading the, the actual the thing, so it's, I'm not describing her as a wrinkled hand. Um, wrinkled hand and two fingers separated in the middle to resemble hoof-like feet. The third pointed at her crooked teeth and chomped her mouth up and down. I don't know what that was about. Um, is this a real story? Like, it's, it's too poetic to be real. Um, also, isn't it interesting thinking about how these stories spread that... Mouth to mouth. Mouth to mouth. <laughs> but that this this story first like was a thing in the September, but the media saved it up until Halloween to tell it. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, and then she turned around and wiggled her fingers near her rear uh, <laughs> to an indicate a twitching tail. Um, <laughs> to, to indicate an itchy bum. An uh, ouchy itchy bum. <laughs> um, uh, she said, we've heard it was left here and that you're protecting it. We need to find it and take it to the church. Uh, the young woman said, who told you this? Um, the first woman said, a woman at the market told us that the poor, pious Italian girl who, um, who married an atheist, such a good soul she is, um, her husband, that heathen, <laughs> tore a picture of the Holy Virgin off the bedroom wall because he hated to see her. Um, the second elbowed There's the a first... Bit, it is a bit of a mood killer, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the second elbowed the first woman aside. Then he yelled and screamed at her and said he'd rather have the devil himself in the house um, instead of this beautiful sacred picture, um, sacred picture. Th- 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 that's what she spoke. Oh, is it okay yeah. with her wrinkled hands <laughs> and her grey head? Um, it was difficult to hear her because she was passing it on <laughs> mouth to mouth. <laughs> the third woman pushed herself ahead of the second, pulling a black wool shawl over her head. She leaned into the whole house resident and added in a hushed voice, "This is the worst part." The devil heard the Wiccan man's curse and entered the soul of her coming child. Um, the resident caught her breath and backed away from the woman. 
Even worse yet, the first one said, pushing the third one away. Also, like, this is the worst bit, yeah. but even worse yet. Even also worse. <laughs> not, so, not another worser. I don't know why they're all pushing each other aside to speak as well. <laughs> I've got also me. Um, <laughs> um, as soon as the devil baby was born, he got up on his cloven hooves and chased his father around the kitchen table all while shaking his finger at him and cursing. I hope it happened with the Benny Hill team. <laughs> <laughs> oh, daddy. <laughs> also, we were saying about how there, there's not enough representation of camp old women. These three <laughs> Italian women need to appear in, in some horror franchise. <laughs> um, the second woman took over, probably pushing the other one away. Um, after a long time, the father caught up with him, even though he was shaking all over in fear, and he picked him up and brought him here to you. Um, again, the third woman came forward. Um, we hear that you took him to the church to get baptised, but when you opened the shawl he was swaddled in, it was empty. The devil baby had escaped and was running over the back of the pews. Uh, <laughs> Wait, where did you get all this from? You know, there's a lot of detail. <laughs> I know, it's weird, there's a lot around this story, and there's also a lot of, like, studies about, like, why the story gained popularity and what it meant about, like, the immigrants. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, oh, there's a lot of stuff in there, but I cut all the kind of, like... The, the academic stuff <laughs> um, and, um, and the other bit about like where it's escaping when I go over the pews uh, there's a bit that I read in another one that, is, that she didn't mention is that apparently the baby also did a little dance when it escaped <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's, it's not easy to do a dance upright on cloven hooves, <laughs> I imagine. Um, all three asked in union, how did you get it back here? Um, so uh, that was them, and they were the beginning, basically, of thousands of people apparently who came to see the baby, um, including scientists and lots of people trying to hope to study the baby. Uh, but they were all turned away saying that the baby didn't exist. Um, some people insist on releasing their own alternate version of the existence of the double baby. Um, Jane Adams recalled a woman who told her that the father of six daughters had said before the birth of the seventh child, he would rather have a devil in the house than another girl, whereupon <laughs> the devil baby promptly appeared. Ha! Um, <laughs> hey, hey, be careful, what your wish for, mister? Um, in another version, a man married an innocent young woman without confessing to her or to a priest, a hideous crime he'd committed years before. His deception became incarnate in his child, which, to the horror of the young woman and trusting mother, had been born with all the outward aspects of the devil himself. Um, so, did I describe what the baby looked like already? Yeah, I think I did. But yeah, yeah, hooves and, uh, yeah, like, a tail horns. And horns. Yeah, Classic. All the business. Um, <laughs> all the and, devil business. And speaking and all that as he came out, wagging his finger. Um, <laughs> his cynical laugh of an old man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what became of the devil baby? Well, great question. Exactly. Uh, nobody knows, obviously. Oh, okay. Uh, but some say it died only a few weeks after mm. afterwards. Um, others say that Jane herself... Uh, raised and cared for the baby, uh, locked it away in the attic of the building. Um, and to this day, people passing by the whole house report seeing a hideous, devil-like face staring at them from the upstairs window. Some say it's the child itself, while others say it's its ghost. Mm. Devil baby. Yeah, I mean, would a devil baby just die of old age? <laughs> well, I don't know. The devil's eternal, isn't he? 
But would his baby? Especially if it was... Would his baby? <laughs> Maybe half eternal. <laughs> <laughs> Just from the waist up. <laughs> Just dragging himself That's along the floor. you can see his face in the window. Everything else is dead. It's just his head dead. Some limp, like, rotting Ooh. lower half. <laughs> oh, my hooves have fallen off. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, but it's interesting cool. that Jane Addams has like also sp- spoken about it. Yeah, it, like um, apparently there's a whole like uh, I didn't I didn't cover this bit. Apparently she has she wrote a book about her life, and apparently there's forty pages covering how the baby doesn't exist. Also, I didn't keep it in the attic and look after it. Here are a few chapters outlining what I didn't do with <laughs> any devil baby that might or might not have existed. <laughs> <laughs> Iconic. <laughs> Jane's baby. Jane's baby. <laughs> Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Bloody Mary's Podcast, and that's Mary's with a Z. And thanks for our theme tune from uh, The Pink Pound. Uh, you can follow them at The Pink Pound Sound. And if you're enjoying Bloody Marys, please like, subscribe and share with all your friends.